theyeshiva.net. Thank you so, so much. Thank you to my dear friend, Reb Shmuel. Thank you to my dear friends, Reb Aaron, Reb Moshe. Thank you to the Arch. Thank you to the base. Thank you to the beautiful, wonderful, warm, hospitable South African Jewish community. Thank you to all of the hundreds of homes and families, couples, individuals who have tuned in here today with us. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. And wherever you're joining us from, I am so privileged yet once again to be able to be here with so many dear, beloved friends, brothers and sisters from all across South Africa and wherever you're joining us from the rest of the world. Thank you so much. As Rabbi Shmuel said, I'm going to speak for some time and then afterwards we'll open the floor to questions and dialogue, which is always very important to be able to get feedback and to hear what's on your mind and what is on your heart. Let me begin with a good, an old but good Jewish anecdote. This is about Yankel. Yankel came from Pinsk. Pinsk is a shtetl in Lithuania. I think most South African families ultimately have their origin, at least many, in Lithuania. And Yankel crossed the ocean and he came to the new country, came to the United States of America. But you know, in the old country, he was known as this, what you would call in Yiddish, a kapzen. A shlomazel, he was poor. He was not very affluent. He did not have a comfortable life. He wasn't respected. And he says to himself, those days are gone. It's a new country, new opportunities. I'm going to finally make it. I'm going to become a man. And he goes, he borrows money. He buys himself a beautiful suit, an elegant tie, dazzling shoes, exquisite hat. He comes to shul on Shabbos and he says, I'm not going to sit in the back anymore. I'm not a schlepper. I'm going to sit right in the front in Mizrach together with the president, together with the board of directors, together with the top donors and benefactors. That's where I'm going to be. He's proud of himself. He's sitting in the front row. And then he thinks to himself, you know, this is not enough. I really need to build my stature and reputation. I know what I'm going to do. You know, before the reading of the Torah, the Gabbai always asks if there's a Kohen. I'm going to say that I'm a Kohen. And that way, automatically, I'm going to be called up to the Torah on Shabbos, on Monday and Thursday. I'll be given various honors. I'm going to bless the community with the priestly blessings. When you're a Kohen, you're automatically in a different, you're in a different state. You're in a different position. You're noticed. You get validation, attention. Shekayach Kohen. Sure enough, the reading of the Torah is about to commence, and the Gabbai says, Cohen, Cohen, and Yankel raises his hand, Yeah, ich bin a Cohen, I'm a Cohen. He gets called up to the Torah, Yamoid, Rabbi Yankel, Rabbi Zundel, Gewaldik, comes down from the Bimish, Koyach, Shkoyach, 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 Koyach, Shkoyach, Koyach. He felt like a million bucks. You know, after davening, everybody walks by the Rav to greet him, to say good Shabbos. And Yankel too gets online, comes his turn, and he meets the Rav. The Rav takes a look at him and says, 
Yankel? From Pinsk? That's you? He says, Rov, that's me, that's me. He says, wow, Shechionu v'kimonu v'giyonu l'zman hazeh. You made it. You're here. That's amazing, incredible. I am so happy. Baruch Mechaya Mesim. But Yankel, I have a question. I remember you as a child in Pinsk. I knew your father. I knew your grandfather. I still remember your great-grandfather, Oliver Shalom. Fine people. Ehrlicher people. Good people. God-fearing Jews. But not Kohanim. How in the world... Yankel, did you become a coin? He looks at the Rav and he says, and I'm going to have to say part of this answer in Yiddish because it's originally a Yiddish joke and then I'll translate. He says, Rav, this is a new country. This is America. If you can be a Rav here, if you can be a rabbi here, I can be a coin. It's an old anecdote, but it conveys a profound message, as we shall see. What I want to address today with you is a very strange Jewish custom that we're all familiar with. Some homes do it, some homes don't do it. Some have even protested it, but nonetheless, it has taken root into the Jewish community universally. In the universe, in the union, universally among the Jewish people all over the world. And that's the strange custom of stealing the Afikoman during the Seder, which we're all preparing to celebrate in just a little more than two weeks. May it be a, a festive and, and liberating holiday for all of us and for the Jewish people, for the whole world, to get out of all of our Egyptian uh, bondage and slavery, whatever form it comes. It's a strange custom. We all know in the beginning of the Seder, we take that middle matzah. It's that part called yachatz. You break that matzah in half. There's a larger piece that gets hidden away. That's called the afikoma. And then there's a smaller part of the matzah that stays on the Seder plate, and we say the Haggadah with it, and then later at the end of the meal, the end of Shulchan Aruch, before we bench, before we say grace after meals and drink our third cup of wine, we go and retrieve the afikoma. But we don't do it, of course. It's the children who always did it. And this fascinating custom that's already pretty ancient is the children steal the afikoma which means they hide it, they don't return it to the parents, of course, until they get the prize that they want. In my days, it was a yo-yo or a Parker pen. The rich kids got a Parker pen, the poor kids for the Afikoma got a bag of potato chips. Today, our priorities have changed. It's a Lamborghini, a private jet, a yacht can also do it for some children. The price for the Afikoma has gone up somewhat due to inflation economically and psychologically and mentally. There were those who protested this custom. They said, we're teaching our kids to steal? We're teaching our kids to take something without permission and then make deals to return it? And others said, nah, it's just, you know, having a little fun. 
making the Seder exciting. The Talmud, the Mishnah says in Tractate Psachim, the last chapter, people are now learning it literally these pages during the Dafyomi. That you grab the matz on the night of Pesach to keep the children up. So this is just part of entertaining the kids that they don't fall asleep. Others said, but stealing? There were even those who said this should be eradicated from the Jewish community because it creates a bad precedent, a bad reputation. How do we celebrate the night when we became a nation, when we experienced independence, when we emancipated from bondage? How? By stealing. It ingrades in children dishonesty. I once read that of Shloyme Zalman Oyerbach, the famous halachic authority from Jerusalem, who passed away in the late 90s or the early early 21st century, he said at his say that he would announce before that he said, we, there is a, a custom among Jews to steal the Afikoman. In our household, we don't do it. But the fact is that in many Jewish homes, they do do it. Why? Doesn't it seem to be the antithesis of the message of Pesach? You want to inculcate and educate your children with those traits and values and characteristics and bequeath to them the Messorah, the tradition and the ethical sensitivity of Judaism, which includes, first and foremost, respect for another person's body, respect for another person's property, consideration, kindness, generosity, benevolence, love, camaraderie. And yet this seems to be a custom that's quite contrary to that. How do we explain this? There's another question that I want to raise, and really the second question is going to answer the first question. And it has to do with the fact that there was another event on Passover. And the other event on Passover also has to do with stealing. <laughs> Somebody else did some stealing on Pesach. And you know who? You remember the story in Genesis, in the torsion of Toldos. Isaac grows old. He can't see. He summons his oldest son, Ace of Esau to go bring him food, to go hunt animals, prepare, well, as Rashi says, he asked him to make sure they're prepared in a kosher way, and bring him the food, and then Isaac is going to bless Esau. And what happens? Rebecca overheard the conversation, and she summons her younger son, Jacob, Yaakov, and she dresses him up like Esau. He should feel like the hairy Esau. She tells him to go fetch two goats that she prepares for her husband so Jacob will bring the food, outsmarting his brother Esau and thus getting the blessings for himself. And that's exactly what he does. Rashi says, why did she need two goats? Who eats two goats? Isaac was eating two goats and Rashi says it was the night of Pesach. And the night of Pesach, traditionally Jews brought two offerings. There was the Passover offering, Karpin Pesach, and there was the Chagigo offering, which was an offering that was brought to celebrate the holidays and have enough meat for yourself and family and poor people and orphans and widows and the community. These were two offerings that were brought on Passover. So Isaac, the patriarchs, observed the Torah on some level even before it was given. Rebekah knew that Isaac would want two goats. There's a famous Midrash called Pirkei the Rabbi Eliezer. And over there in chapter 32, there's a beautiful and dramatic description. 
that it was the night of Passover when Isaac summoned his son Esau and said, My son, this is the night when the angels are singing in heaven. This is the night when the treasures of dew are opened up. This is the night of tremendous blessing and affluence. Bring me food when I'm alive so I can bless you. And that's when Rebecca told Jacob, this is an extraordinary night, the night of Pesach. Make sure you bring the food to your father so he will bless you. Wow! Jacob goes and steals the blessing from his brother Esau. When Esau finds out, he's crying, he's weeping. He's saying that's why his name is Yaakov, which means he outsmarted me. He took away my birthright, and now he took away my blessing. It seems like Passover is associated with theft. The kids are stealing the Afrikaiman. Because Jacob also stole something. He stole his tati's blessings that belonged to his older brother. It's interesting, on a side note, when Esau returns with his hunt from the field, he asks his father to eat it. But Isaac refuses the food, and Isaac therefore refuses to bless him. What happened? Why does Isaac refuse to eat what Esau gave him? He won't eat it. It's an interesting thing. It says that Isaac trembled. Who is the one who hunted game and brought it to me and I ate of everything before you came? Let him be blessed. Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessings. Why couldn't Isaac eat more food? So one of the commentators say that the word Isaac uses, Ba your brother came deceitfully. The numerical value of the word bimirma is 287, which is the same numerical value as the word afikaiman. Jewish law prevents us from eating anything on the night of Passover after eating the Passover offering and after eating the afikaiman nowadays. So Isaac is saying, Ba Your brother came deceitfully, but it also means your brother already gave me the afikaiman. I already ate my Passover offering. You're not supposed to eat anything after the Afikoman so that the taste of the matzah lingers in your mouth. So I can't enjoy your food, Esau. I can't bless you afterwards. In fact, some people say that's why we steal the Afikoman on Passover. Because that's exactly what Jacob did. He stole the blessings from his brother Esau. The Afikoman is what allowed the theft to take place. We commemorate that how? By stealing the Afikoman each year on the night of Passover. What is all this supposed to mean? Why are we enshrining and immortalizing an act of theft? What does this mean? How do we explain this? By the way, that's why Jacob gives Esau wine as well. He didn't ask for wine. It was the night of Pesach. He got to drink four cups of wine. He had to bring him wine. My dearest friends... There was one more act of theft that was done on Pesach. You know what? One more. It says that when the Jews left Egypt, they ran away. The nation escaped. That's what the Torah says in Exodus. Pharaoh heard that the nation escaped. One second, they didn't escape. 
Pharaoh gave them permission to leave. He expelled them. So Rashi says, Moses told Pharaoh, we're leaving only for three days. We're going to come back after three days. He deceived Pharaoh. He stole his mind. It's called Gneva's Das. He said, we're leaving for three days. After three days, Pharaoh said, Pharaoh saw they're not coming back. He realized he was duped. That's when he was angered and infuriated and decided to pursue the Jewish slaves and bring them back to bondage. My question to you is, why did Moses have to deceive Pharaoh? Why can't he just tell him the raw truth? Pharaoh, we are going and we are never coming back. Let's have a closure. Let's have closure because we are not returning to this cursed place. You'll say, well, if he would have said the truth, Pharaoh may have had second thoughts. Wait, wait. If Pharaoh would have had it his way, he wouldn't have let the Jews leave even for three days. In fact, Moses kept on asking him, let's just go on a holiday. And Pharaoh said, no, 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 I will not let you go. No, no, no. So Pharaoh would have had it his way. He would have not let the Jews even leave for three days. The only reason he finally consented is because he was brought to his knees as a result of the final and devastating 10th plague when the first male born in every Egyptian home suddenly died from a pandemic, from a plague. That is what brought him to his knees and finally had him acquiesce and surrender and tell Moses, leave, get out. He himself was afraid that he's going to die. So at this point, the man was desperate. The king was frightened for his life. He would have agreed to anything and everything. Moses should have said, my dear Pharaoh, we're not going for three days. We are going for good. And what would have Pharaoh said? No, he was forced at that point. He never did it based on his own volition. He was coerced. If he was coerced, you could have told him the truth. Moses did not. Moses chose to keep up the front, to camouflage the truth until the end. He told him we're leaving only for three days. Wow. Here again, there is deception. There is a form of dishonesty. Why don't you communicate openly to this tyrant that you're not coming back? Somehow, Pharaoh too had to be duped. Pharaoh too had to be deceived. So we have theft everywhere. <laughs> We're stealing the Afikoman. Jacob steals the blessings on this night. Moses steals Pharaoh's mind. He deceives Pharaoh also on this night. What is going on here? There's, of course, more. On this night and this day, Jews borrowed utensils of gold, utensils of silver, beautiful garments from their Egyptian neighbors. They said, we're borrowing them. Did they borrow them? No, they took them. (laughs) Once again. In fact, the Talmud says that years later, the Egyptians came to Alexander the Great and they demanded all the money back. The Jews stole the money. And a Jewish representative, Gvia ben Psisa, came to Alexander the Great. He said, no problem, we'll give everything back. But first, let's make a calculation. How much do they owe us for slave labor of 600,000 men between 20 and 60 who were slave laborers for years? After they pay us for all that labor, we will then return any money that we owe them. Of course, that was the end of that. What is going on here? Do you see, my friends, a pattern of theft? Wow. My truth, my my dearest brothers and sisters, we have here a very profound message about transforming challenges and even traumas into opportunities. Whenever we decide 
we're going to live a free life, an emancipated life, a liberated life. There is always a voice inside of me that says, this is not you. You are destined to be miserable. You are destined to be traumatized. You are destined to be depressed. When you tell yourself, I want to have the best marriage in South Africa, or at least top 10. I want to have the best relationship with my children. I want to be a positive person. I want to be a happy person. I want to be a fulfilled, inspired, enlightened person. I want to be an ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, authenticity, wisdom, Yiddishkeit, redemption. I want to live a life of truth, of integrity. I want to live a life of confidence, of inner serenity, of inner conviction, of unwavering loyalty and dedication. Or one day you may tell yourself, I want to be a leader. I want to be a source of blessing and inspiration. I want to be a powerhouse. I want to have positive influence. I would like to make a positive change in my community, in my home, in my family, in the world. I want to be a happy person. I want to be an accomplished person. I want to be a consistent person. Or anything else you would like to be. I want to lose weight. I want to become rich. I want to be successful. I want to be powerful. I want to live an empowered, invigorated life. There's always the voice that follows. And those voices, sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious, tell me, who do you think you are? You're a loser. You're a shlamazel. You're a shlamiel. You're a nuddik. My grandmother used to say, the shlamiel pours the soup on the shlamazel, and the nuddik wants to know, what type of soup was it? And sometimes I pour the soup on myself and I want to know what type of soup it is. In other words, I am the shlamil, the shlamazl, and the nuddik, all in one person. That inner voice tells me, who do you think you are to be gorgeous, physically, emotionally, spiritually? Who do you think you are to be happy? Who do you think you are to be healthy? You're supposed to be the poster child of a traumatized victim, a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, who through epigenetics is transforming and transmitting intergenerational trauma of the Jewish community for 2,000 years. You're supposed to be the person who is forever going from one therapist to another therapist, from one treatment to another treatment, from yoga to Pilates, back to the gym, back to a psychiatrist, back to a therapist, to figure out why you are hurting inside. There's that voice in me who says, who do you think you are to be happy? Who do you think you are to have a wonderful marriage? Who do you think you are to be successful? Who do you think you are to be gorgeous? Who do you think you are to be a leader, to be influential? Who do you think you are to be successful? Come on. You know what type of home you grew up in. You know about the dysfunction in your heart, the dysfunction in your home, the dysfunction in your family. This is your fate. This is your destiny. These things don't belong to you. These things belong to other people. I, I am destined to always be struggling inside with my ghosts and my demons and my skeletons and my past, especially if I indeed experience disappointment in my life. 
Hemingway said life breaks all people and then some of us learn how to live in the broken places. But some of us have been broken more than others. Hemingway never learned how to live in the broken places. He took his life. What about if I did experience abuse? What if I have deep trauma inside of me, either my own or from previous generations? What if I am bothered and I am experiencing tension and stress and anxiety and unresolved issues? I'm not supposed to be free. I can't leave Egypt. You know, the word Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. You know what Mitzrayim means in Hebrew? Meitzarim, confinements, constraints. Egypt is not just a country. Egypt represents in Jewish mysticism and spirituality any voice in your brain that tells you to remain limited and confined that tells you that you are stuck in these neural pathways. This is the trajectory of your life. This is the path of your life. You cannot veer off this path. I am destined to remain with my anxiety, with my stress, with my disappointments, with my sadness, with my anger, with my jealousy, with my fear, with my insecurity, with my frustration. You can, If you need more adjectives, you can discuss it with your mother-in-law, your spouse, or your therapist. That's the voice inside of me. And you know what else this voice tells me? This voice tells me in Yiddish, You're a ganav. You're a thief. This does not belong to you. Happiness does not belong to you. Serenity does not belong to you. Geula, redemption, does not belong to you. Give it up. Give it back, you thief. Imagine you're seeing a thief taking something very expensive, priceless, and running away with it. And you scream, Ghana thief! Put it back, it's not yours. We have that inner voice inside of us. When Passover comes, Pesach is the night of liberation, and I want to set myself free. But it's not just on Pesach. The Torah commands us to remember the Exodus every single day of our life, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. That's how we start the Haggadah. Amar Rebbe Lazar ben Azariah. L'man tisker siyom tzeschem ayatushayim. Kol yemechayecha yemechayecha yamim kol yemechayecha haleilos. It's the opening of the Haggadah. There's a mitzvah to remember the Exodus of Egypt every day and every night. Why? We have such short... We forget things so fast. Somebody once told me, he says, you're giving a speech... He said, this is the rule. A story you could repeat once in two years. People remember a story for two years. A joke you could repeat once a year. A Dvar Torah you could repeat twice in the same sermon. What's the source for this? God says, remember the Exodus by day and by night. Well, I forgot already? I have to remember it again? No. Because the challenge of liberation is a daily meditation. There is a daily battle for transcendence. And in that battle, there is that inner toxic voice that says, Rabbi Waiwai, Yankel, Chaim, Shmedel, Zundel, Yossel, or James, or Harry, or Stephen, or Sira, or Leir, or Chaya, or Basya, or Yent, Stakhanev, you're a thief. Happiness doesn't belong to you. 
Health doesn't belong to you. Success doesn't belong to you. Joy doesn't belong to you. Tranquility doesn't belong to you. Trauma belongs to you. Pain belongs to you. Envy, jealousy, insecurity, resentment. You're living with resentment. Great! That's where you belong. You belong in slavery. You belong being enslaved and subjugated to your inner unresolved wounds and scars that are tattooed into your soul. That's where you belong. And you know what you have to tell these voices? And you know what I have to tell these voices? You want to call me a Ganev? You can call me a Ganev. There will always be a Pharaoh inside of you who wants to keep you in bondage. And he will always say, you are a thief, you are deceiving me, you are deceiving yourself, you are deceiving reality. Learn how to quarantine the voices inside of you that call you a thief and don't allow you to set yourself free. I may not always be able to obliterate those voices from inside of me. There is always a pharaoh inside of me who says, you're running away, you're lying, you're not supposed to leave, you really belong here. That voice I can't always get rid of, but I do not have to fall prey to it. I do not have to surrender to mediocrity. I do not have to live a life of quiet desperation. I can say carpe diem, seize the day. Whenever I am about to fetch something grand, whenever I am about to become the person who God wants me to become, there will always be a voice inside of me that accuses me of being a thief, that accuses me of taking things that don't belong to me. I have to remain in exile. I have to remain in bondage. I have to remain miserable. Comes Passover and says, no, no. Esau will call you a thief. Pharaoh will call you a thief. Your inner voice, there'll be an inner voice that will call you a thief. That's fine. Call me whatever you want. But that cannot derail me or paralyze me or keep me stuck in the quagmire of my depression and my trauma and my melancholy. I have to tell myself, yes, I have been through challenging moments. Yes, they have made an impression on my neural pathways, on my brain. Yes, I go back into the vicious cycle of repetitive, quest- repetitive thinking, questioning myself, alienating myself, feeling that I can't and I am destined to remain in prison. Yes, but those are voices. They don't constitute my essence. Who am I? I am a child of God. I am an ambassador of infinity in this world. I am a representative of Hashem, and therefore, as we always discuss, just as God at His core is indestructible and invincible, so I too, if I can only align my posture with infinity, if I can only allow myself to stand up and reclaim my true innate essence, of course I'm healthy. My soul is a chelik elekami mal mamish. My soul is a piece of Hashem, a fragment of heaven a ray of infinity. It is full of possibility. It is full of confidence. It is full of energy. It is full of joy. It is full of promise. It's never stuck in anybody. And it's never stuck in anything. And the circumstances don't define me. The circumstances teach me what I have to work on. 
The circumstances teach me where I have to focus my energy. Never do I allow those voices that claim that I'm a thief to cause me to die inside and surrender my urge and my yearning and my longing to be set free that is why my dearest friends we steal the Afikaiman that is why we steal the matzah of liberation that is why Jacob had to deceive Pharaoh that is why Jacob went to take the blessings of Esau because there will always be a voice telling you that true happiness, true freedom simply does not belong to you. The experience of cheirut, of true inner joy, of true alignment with your ultimate spiritual purpose will always elude you. You could never be anxiety-free. You could never be stress-free. You're just not that type. Your neighbor may be. Your cousin may be, your friend may be, but not you. You have to remain with Pharaoh. That's who you are. That is your destiny. Friends, do you know this voice? What do you do at such a moment? You have to do something which appears like stealing. You have to grab things that some will scream don't belong to you. You need to grab the matzah, even though... An inner voice is telling you that you're stealing, it's not yours. If you wait till those voices are silent, you may have to wait forever. We can't afford to wait. Choose now to be a free person. There will always be a Pharaoh who will tell you that you have to remain in Egypt, that you are undeserving to embrace freedom, that you can't go, and at such a moment you have to say... It looks like I'm stealing. Yes, from your perspective, I'm stealing. But the truth is, this is my core. This is my essence. God says, I am taking you out. As long as you are mine, as you are my ambassador, even the sky is not the limit. Judaism, in its noble insistence that every human being is capable of real freedom, postpones an absolute vision of emancipation till the messianic era. In the here and the now, I can create a consciousness of redemption. Even if I can't obliterate every single dark thought that wants to keep me trapped, but I can quarantine these thoughts. I don't have to let them dictate my life. I don't have to worship them. Selfishness, promiscuity, laziness, melancholy... Even if they will come my way, I will say, listen, I know that I appear like a thief, but this really, really belongs, belongs to me. I was speaking to somebody the other day, and he tells me, I will never speak to my brother again. I will never speak to my sister again. I will never speak to my sister-in-law again. I'm never going to speak to my nephews, my nieces. Some family feud. I say, why? He says, it's been this way for so many years. And really, I can't change the status quo. You ever heard that from somebody? You ever feel that inside of yourself? The other day, somebody told me, I could never, ever close my store. 
my office, my company on Shabbos. It's too scary for me. And this is how it's been for years. Somebody tells me, I just can't wake up in the morning every day and meditate and daven and put on tefillin. I can't really celebrate Shabbos the way my parents or my Zayda and Baba did. I can't really make my home completely kosher. It's too overwhelming. I can't learn Torah every day. Come on. It's, it's, just, it's just not for me. It's the furthest thing from me. I cannot make peace with my former business partner. We have been in a fight for 20 years. These are all the messages. I can't. All the I can'ts in life. And if I try to, somebody will tell me, this doesn't belong to you. You're a thief. You're trying to grab things that don't belong to you. But my friends, Pesach teaches us that sometimes you just have to run. You can't wait till Pharaoh agrees. It may never happen. There will be a part of you that says this situation is hopeless. Ignore it. You're not a thief. You deserve to be in a good relationship with your family. You can elevate your life. You can wake up each morning and connect to God and connect to truth and anchor yourself in your essence. Some of the deepest blessings in life come to us via what somebody will call theft. Of course, Rebecca could have told Isaac to give Jacob the blessings. But Rebecca was teaching her son and all of her children for all the generations that in life, whenever you reach for the heavens, whenever you seek the blessings of the dew from heaven and the fat of the land, you will appear as a thief. Somebody inside of you or outside of you will holler that you are a ganev. You don't deserve the dew of heavens. You don't deserve the fat of the land. You need to remain poor, miserable. Happiness doesn't belong to you. Serenity doesn't belong to you. You have to remain in Egypt. You're a slave. You're destined to a life of depression, of trauma, not of inspiration. And at such a moment, you have to stand up and declare, I will take it anyhow, because my essence is divine, wholesome, beautiful, perfect, happy, excited, confident, and really infinite. My dearest friends, there's one final point And now I need you to open your hearts. We hide the Afikoman. It's called Tzafun. You know the 15 steps of the Passover program? We have a 15-step program from addiction to recovery. And one of the last ones is called Tzafun. You know what Tzafun means? What's Tzafun? You see, I was listening in school. Tzafun means hidden. Why is it called hidden? Because dafikoman is hidden. We don't keep dafikoman on the table. That piece of matzah that we broke off in the beginning of the Seder is hidden. If there's no children around, you hide it yourself. If there's children, they hide it. And now it's hidden. And who is the one who uncovers it? You hide dafikoman. And who is the one who reveals it, who brings it to the fore, who retrieves it? Sometimes wanting a big prize, or not, depends on your custom. It's always the children. Why? Why is it always the children? Even in those homes where the children don't steal the Afrikaiman, but it's they who find the Afrikaiman and bring it back to you, right? I think in most homes. Why? Friends, open your hearts. 
is very deep. In life, remember this. Whatever you hide, your children are going to reveal. Whatever we try to hide, whatever we, re- we relegate to our subconscious and we're not ready to deal with, it's going to come to the fore through our children. That's the blessing of these times. Our children are bringing to the fore things that we have repressed for generations. I speak to you now as a brother to brothers and as a brother to sisters. So many people are struggling with their children, with their grandchildren. They want to know what happened to this generation. Why did I never behave this way? My dearest friends, I don't know. I'm not a prophet and I'm no expert. But what I do know is we are seeing the patterns of the Afikaiman. What we have hidden, what we have hid away, what we have tucked away under our carpets, what we have relegated to the sub-sub-subconscious cellars of our psyche, what our parents have hidden away, what our grandparents have hidden away, our children have now discovered. And they bring it to the fore. And they shine the light on it. And it's not comfortable. It's hard. It's triggering stuff. It's arousing a lot of stuff that we never dealt with. But the fact that we never dealt with it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that it's hidden. And they are the ones that are now bringing it all here in front of our eyes. And now you and I have a choice. We can get angry at them. We can get upset at them. We can become self-righteous. We can start chastising them. Or even worse, we can disassociate from them emotionally. Our calling today is to actually take the afikoman from their hands and give them a hug while you're at it. Take it. Look at it. Our children will teach us things that we could never teach ourselves. They will shine a light on those things that I never dealt with and you never dealt with and some of our parents never dealt with. And it's not because they didn't want to deal with it. It's because we didn't have the tools. Everybody tried to do the best they can, but we didn't have the tools. Take the afikoman from them. Learn how to go to a deeper place inside of yourself. And finally, don't allow those traumas to define you even if your inner voice says that you're a thief. And then together we can declare, L'Shana Haba Bi Yerushalayim. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Jacobson, it was beyond inspiring as always. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. There are a few questions we'd like to get through. Did Rivka know that Asav had sold the birthright to Yaakov? Did Rivka know that Asav sold the birthright? That's a great question. I believe so. I believe, I think that Rivka knew. And perhaps even Yitzchak knew. The Torah does not say explicitly any of this. But one of the commentators says something very powerful that when Esau came in, it says Yitzchak started to tremble. So Rashi says, he saw 
Gehenim, purgatory, hell, walking with Esau. Well, where did this, Rashi takes it from the Medrash, where did, where did the rabbis come up with this? What means, how do you have hell walking in with you? What is that, what is that supposed to mean? When Yaakov walks in, he sees paradise walking in with him. We thought paradise and hell were in the afterlife. It turns out it's not that way. We create our own paradise. We create our own hell. You know how? By the way we live. I can live in this world and I'm living in a place of paradise and I can live in this world and I'm living in a place of purgatory. It's about where my mind is, where my consciousness is, how my attitude deals with life. Esau, Esau came in and he said, I am your oldest, I am your firstborn. But he sold it to Yaakov. In other words, he lied. And when somebody says a lie, the ambiance of purgatory and hell surrounds them and envelops them. Thank you. The event of Yaakov stealing his brother's brother was generations before the exodus when Pesach took place. Yes. How come they were celebrating Pesach then? Great question. How could Yitzchak, Yaakov, Esau, Rivka celebrate Pesach? It's hundreds of years before the Jews left Egypt. Wonderful question. It goes back even more, further in history. You know, Lot serves his angels, his guests, matzah. Rashi says, why matzah? Because it was Pesach. The angels came to visit Abraham on Pesach. That's when they told him, you're going to have a child next year. And they came to Lot that day. That evening, and he served them matzah. What is going on there? And of course, the idea is that in Judaism, the fact that the exodus of Egypt happened on that night and that day is not coincidental. It's because there is an energy that vibrates on that day from the beginning of creation, and spiritual souls were sensitive to that energy. So we say that the patriarchs observed the Torah even before it was given. But most of the Torah... We can only observe after the Torah was given. How did Abraham put on tefillin when the tefillin contains parchment and portions of the Bible that was only written later? But the idea is that every mitzvah, every holiday has a certain energy, a certain spiritual meditation and energy. It's accessing a certain dimension of consciousness and that they had access to even before the physical exodus of Egypt took place. Great question. Thank you. How does someone who is traumatized heal something that seems hopeless? Yeah, so how do we heal when, when, when there's something that seems so hopeless? And I think the first, we have to do two things. First of all, we have to have compassion for the pain and for the anxiety and for the various thoughts that we're having. Don't fight these thoughts. They're coming from a deep place of pain and disappointment, and it's more important to grieve. So there's a certain element of midas harachamim, compassion, that is so important. In other words, don't fight these inner feelings that it's hopeless. Feel bad, feel compassion, feel compassion for yourself, feel compassion for the person who's struggling. It may be you, feel compassion for yourself, that's number one. Number two, when you feel compassion, you can also know that these thoughts don't define all of reality. They don't capture the full story. Thoughts are defined in Kabbalistic literature as garments. You know why? Because garments are made to put on and take off. We often look at thoughts as innate, 
as permanent, as fixed, as the representative of our identity. If I'm thinking something, that's who I am. No, no. It's like a suit. My suit can be dirty. I can change my suit. Your thoughts are not you. Thoughts are behaviors. Not all thoughts. Sometimes thoughts pop into my head and I don't have a choice. But my patterns of thoughts are behaviors and behaviors you're in control of. So I have to be able to have compassion for these thoughts that I'm experiencing, but I don't have to become a victim of them. And therefore I could tell myself, yes, this is part of my life, but I'm not ready to accept the truth of Pharaoh, that it's hopeless, that nothing will ever change, that what happened yesterday has to happen tomorrow. Those thoughts are coming from an inner Pharaoh that wants us to remain enslaved. I have to be able to tell myself, it's painful. I don't know why it happened. I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. I may not even know what to do about it. But what I do know is that I am anchored in a place of infinity where nothing is stuck, where nothing has to remain the same way forever, where there is newness, where there is transformation, where there is creativity, where there is something called now. Now, the Midrash says, the Talmud says, when it says now in the Bible, it means tshuva, repentance. Why? Because now means that there is a moment called now that is not a reflection of yesterday or a year ago. The power of now comes from the fact that I am never trapped there is newness. You, I have to believe in that. Isaac Basheva Singer once said, we have to believe in free choice. We have no choice. The, the real Jewish message is, we have to believe in free choice because that's who we really are. We are not slaves. We were meant to be free. We were not meant to be slaves. Slavery is an aberration. It's not your innate, intrinsic identity. Thank you. An interesting question. Is there ever saying that if a child needs mitzvah observance that he is acting out of his own about, about, about out of the parent's own ambivalence about mitzvah? That's a great question. Wow. Am I saying that when your child leaves Judaism or mitzvah observance, is the child really mirroring the ambivalence and the uncertainty of the parents? You know what? That's quite a cute observation. But I would be very careful to make a blanket statement and a generalization about every situation. But certainly, when our children are struggling with something, whatever it may be, it's very often a reflection of things that are going on in the parents. But not always. This is not about self-blame and self-judgment and self-loathing. It's my fault. Jewish mothers have enough of that. That's not the point. If this is going to make you feel more guilty, you're not going to help your child. The point is that our children often are an alarm clock and they can wake us up to certain realities that we have never dealt with. And when we fix those realities inside ourselves will be able to help our children. But of course, there are also so many other things that we have to appreciate. Sometimes our children have their own struggles. Sometimes they have their own internal mental or physical or emotional challenges. Sometimes it's things that were passed down. They're not even accessing their own trauma. They're accessing trauma from their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. Our, my point is we have to be attentive, non-judgmental, 
loving, sensitive, and our focus should never be, Oy, I'm such a nebuch case, I'm not having nachas for my child, he's supposed to give me nachas. Our children are not a nachas machine. Rather, God gave us these diamonds, and he gave us a mission to help them develop in the best way possible. And very often, they help us see things that we were not ready to look at. Thank you. To free ourselves from our own lives is very inspiring. But why teach these lessons through deception, trickery, when honesty is the matter we revere? Excellent question. Why teach these lessons through trickery and deception and so forth? And maybe it wasn't so clear, maybe I did not bring the point out clear. All these things are metaphors. Yes, there are Jewish homes where they don't do the custom of stealing the Afrikaimen for this reason. I'm just explaining that even if you're not doing it, or you are doing it, it's really a metaphor, it's a lesson. Moses told Pharaoh we're leaving for three days, and he deceived him because Jews had to run away from Egypt. If he would have told Pharaoh, we're going for good, it wouldn't work because they just leaving Egypt and then there's taking Egypt out of you. You could take, what's, what's the expression? You could take the Jew, they used to say you could take the Jew out of Russia, you could take the Jew out of exile, you can't take exile out of the Jew. I can leave Egypt, but how do I take Egypt outside of me? Dude, Pharaoh was inside of them. The Pharaoh that they had to deceive was the Pharaoh inside of them. We're not talking here deceiving somebody in business, God forbid. We're talking here deceiving that voice inside of you, which really believes that you don't deserve to be free. Here, deception is very, very important. You have to tell that voice, yeah, you could call me a thief. You could say that I'm too scared, that I'm too insecure, but I really can't follow your diagnosis. Sorry. Thank you. And thank you once again for a most inspiring share, for a most inspiring talk. It was beyond a pleasure to be together with you once again. Thank you, my dear friend. Thank you. I want to take the opportunity to thank everyone for joining us this evening. On behalf of Reverend Austin and myself, my brother, Jonimo, Aventec, the Arch, the Base. It's really been special to see so many hundreds of people join once again for the learning of Torah. I want to draw your attention to next week's guest speaker is Rabbi Yitzchak Bratovitz, who will be speaking on the topic of the Pesach Seder as a paradigm for liberation. Next week, Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Rabbi Bratovitz is a very special teacher. Rabbi Bratovitz is a very special teacher and a bright man, to say the least. I also want to thank, I want to thank you, Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Aaron, Rabbi Moshe, you guys are really a powerhouse team, powerful team, doing incredible work, and it's always a privilege to speak to uh, the warmest Jewish community in the world, and I hope to be able to visit you very soon, and I hope you'll be able to visit me very soon, and I also want to thank very much uh, the Zulberg family, I know that this evening is dedicated in the memory of Leah Bas Yosef HaKohen, Thank you for the privilege. I send you all my love and my light. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining. Keep safe. Have a good night. Hope to see everyone soon. Amen. In person, in person, in person. Amen.
L'shana haba b'Yerushalayim, even this Pesach. <laughs> this class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.